everybody. All right, so we're going to continue talking about leadership. And uh, we'll see what it is that we discover. I don't have any fancy slides or anything with charts or anything today. I, I apologize. It's just, I know that you've come to expect this of me. I don't know. So today we're going to uh, continue on. Uh, previously we talked about uh, Jesus in relationship to the type of leadership that he shows during his time physically walking amongst us on earth. So we talked about uh, five specific things. Uh, does anybody remember any of those five things? Go. Focus on God. Discipline in prayer. Okay, people are looking at notes, which is good. Right. Capitalizing on the unexpected. Like when people call things out randomly from the audience, even though you request it. Right, so uh, Jesus showed that he was focused on his goal. What was his goal? To follow God's will, right? And he was definitely focused on following God's will. I guess, I guess, yes. Death, Pastor Monty says. Right. Uh, he was disciplined in prayer. Uh, no matter how late it was, uh, no matter how early it was, uh, he showed a, a discipline in his prayer life. Um, he showed self-control. We used examples of his tempting in the desert to show that even though he was hungry, he didn't simply turn the, the rocks into bread. Uh, though he was tempted with, uh, with many riches, he didn't, uh, he didn't succumb to that. And though he was... Uh, tempted to put God to the test, uh, he did not do so. In all of those instances, what did he use to combat that? He used the word of God. He used scripture. We talked about his ability to seize upon the unexpected. Uh, talked briefly about his encounter with the bleeding woman as he was coming through town. We talked about the, uh, the blind beggar waiting outside of the city gates, screaming his name, basically, and his reaction to that. And we talked about the fact that in his leadership, uh, he did not go about establishing just him as a leader alone, but it was solely for the purpose of building up a community. And we see that uh, he started that at the beginning with the, the 12 disciples, and then they're uh, there and are charged to go out and make disciples of all men. So these attributes helped to define who it is that we understand Jesus to, to be, right? They help to define who he is for us. It gives him, um, it gives us, you know, texture to the person of Jesus. They helped us to discover more about him, and they spoke specifically to his character. Now, character is an important, uh, important thing to look for in a leader, um, it's important thing to, to look for in everyone. We focus, uh, of course, on Christ-centered leadership, but the attributes that we look for in a leader, those character traits are something that we all uh, are looking for, that we should all strive for, uh, even if we're not in a leadership role. So the question that I pose to you today is, what exactly is character? 
and how does that speak to what a leader is? Well, character is many things, right? Because we have this beautiful American English, uh, one word can mean many, many things. Uh, if I'm an actor, a character is a role that I put on and I take off at will. Uh, if I'm just that funny guy, oh, I'm such a character. And yes, I have been called that, of course. Um, when I'm saying character, though, I'm specifically talking about the mental and moral qualities that are distinctive to an individual. I'm not talking about something that is just clothing that could be taken off uh, when it no longer suits. I'm not talking about somebody that on Sunday looks and dresses the part and, and acts the part. I'm talking about somebody that throughout the entirety of their life, throughout the entirety of the week, lives in a certain way, in a certain manner. Now, of course, we all strive to do that, and we all fall short, obviously, because we are imperfect. But fortunately, uh, God is, is willing to work with us and work with our struggle as we attempt to come close to the example of his son, as we work to embody those characteristics. Just a moment. So character is not something that we just put into our lives, it what, it's what comes out of our lives. Uh, interestingly enough, the origin of the word character in uh, 1275 to 1325 is from the Latin or Greek character, which speaks specifically of a graving tool or the mark that that graving tool leaves. Now I want you to think about this. When you're engraving something, you're literally scoring into it and leaving a permanent mark, right? Character speaks not only to the tool that's doing that scraping, but also to the mark that that scraping leaves. This isn't something that just wipes off. It's not something written in pencil. It's not even something written in pen. This is dug down deep into the very heart of who we are. It seems easy for people to put on this clothing and to act a certain way, but they can't sustain it forever. And that's when you begin to see the true mark of their character. There's a reason that we have that phrase, that we have that colloquialism, mark of character, because you will see their true self, their true character come out, and that is the true mark of who they are. We have for us a guide. Our guide, of course, is the Word of God. The Word of God speaks to the character of who God is himself. Francis Schaeffer said that the moral absolutes rest upon God's character. Moral commands he has given to men are an expression of his character. Men, as created in his image, are to live by choice on the basis of what God is. The standards of morality are determined by what conforms to his character, and while those things which do not conform are immoral. Kind of hit the nail right on the head. Our standard is God, and we can see his character 
through the morality that he gives us. And those that do not conform with God's will are immoral. So let's go ahead and take opportunity to see what God's word has to say for us as to who we are to be, what the outworking is, what our character, what the mark is that we were all striving for. While not the only passage, one of the great passages that does speak to this is in 1 Timothy chapter 3, when we talk specifically about leaders in the church. Now remember, as I go through this, though you may not all be called to be leaders, that does not mean that you should not strive to have these characteristics, that these things should not inform who you are, and you should not strive to obtain them. Uh, even those people that you find in leadership don't necessarily have all of these qualities because, again, we are imperfect. But we are all works in progress, and we have something to learn and to glean from it. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 2, So an elder must be a man whose life is above reproach. He must be faithful to his wife. He must exercise self-control. Live wisely and have a good reputation. He must enjoy having guests in his home. He must be able to teach. He must not be a heavy drinker or be violent. He must be gentle, not quarrelsome, and not love money. He must manage his own family well, having children who respect and obey him. For if a man cannot manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? An elder must not be a new believer because he might become proud and the devil would cause him to fall. And also people outside the church must speak well of him so that he will not be disgraced and fall into the devil's trap. So we're going to just take opportunity today to study these few short verses and take each one of those attributes and speak to them. So the first attribute that we see that it speaks to is that an elder must be above reproach. So what does that mean, above reproach? Society doesn't use the word reproach much these days, right? In fact, we don't even really talk about uh, people's character until, oh, something happens. Then, especially right now, it's all over the news, right? It's the top story. You can think of several, several things that will just pop to mind. So I'm not even going to go over them because they are so, they're so plentiful. Um, we have accusations that are flying around about just about everybody. And sadly enough, at this point in time, accusations alone seem to be enough to ruin people and what people think about them. But to be above reproach, though, does not mean that people are not going to say things about you. The Greek word describes a garment without any folds. Nothing hidden. It's not that you haven't done anything. It's not that you haven't um, stumbled, uh, that you are perfect, it's that in those stumblings, in those times when people would like to hide things, you yourself do not hide those things. And you bear yourself and you say, listen, this is who I am. This is what has taken place. And this is what I'm doing to fix that. 
to have no skeletons in your closet, to not even have a closet for the skeletons to be in, so that if there is an accusation against you, you can turn and say, look, my whole life is laid bare. There is no witness to that. To be above reproach means that if you do stumble, if you do fall, that you take opportunity to make amends for that so that no one can hold that over you and say, oh, remember that one time that you did this? It'd be a shame if that got out. Our lives should be open books. We should not have anything that is hidden that we are ashamed of. Nothing that can be held as a tool for leverage to allow someone other than God to have control over our life to be above reproach. It goes on to say that he must be faithful to his wife. The Greek actually reads husband of one wife. So unfortunately, this qualification has been wrapped up in a lot of controversy. And I think because of different controversies, you've missed the, the essentials of it. Uh, people talk about, is it only one wife at a time? Is it never divorced or remarried? Uh, is it never remarried even after the death of a wife? Uh, or is it just speaking to marital faithfulness? Everyone does agree that only one wife at a time is included. So a leader in the church should not have more than one wife. The standard clearly excludes any polygamy, bigamy, or digamy. There are good arguments for and against never being divorced or remarried. But I would say that the uh, Bible doesn't speak clearly on that matter. I would also say that there is doubt that uh, number three, never remarried even after death, is included since it seems to contradict what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 about the advisability of marriage. The fourth option suggests that Paul had in mind marital faithfulness as a character quality of a godly leader. So the question is, why is this important even? And it comes down to this. If a man is not faithful to his wife, how can he be trusted to be faithful to his obligations elsewhere? If he cannot uphold the vows that he has taken to his wife, how can he be trusted to uphold his vows and his obligations elsewhere? It's as simple as that. Here are some questions that we should ask of our potential leaders. Is he a flirt? Does he have that roving eye? Are his affections centered on his wife? Does he demonstrate that affection and loyalty in ways that others can see? Is his marriage a model to be followed by others? And, again, is he above reproach in his interactions with the opposite sex? Let me take opportunity to say, hi, Julia, I love you. In a visible way. So... In leadership, in godly leadership, we are looking for them to be faithful uh, in their marital relationship. 
Paul goes on to say in Timothy 3.2 that they are to be self-controlled, also known as disciplined. This doesn't mean someone should come along and spank them, but it does mean that they should be in control of their attitudes. We also uh, look to Jesus, as we discussed last week, in his self-control. For examples of how we are to act. The word describes a person whose strength is under control. I want you to think of dynamite and the awesome power that is there. Dynamite can be very destructive is it, if it goes off in an uncontrolled manner. Lives can be lost. Things can be blown beyond any organization. However, if it's used properly as a tool, you can literally cut a straight line with dynamite through rock, through salt, blocks of salt, through granite, through so many things. Power under control. Now you might question me, you might say, James, what do you mean power? How do we have any power? Are we not empowered by the Spirit? Do we not have the power of God's word? Do we not have the power even of free will that God has given us? All of these powers can be explosive in nature. All of these things can be out of control. They can be chaotic. But a leader, a man of God, should be able to control those things. They should be easily disciplined. If you have a leader that gets angry and loses control at the off word, if you have a leader that gets offended at the slightest phrase, there's a problem there. The book of James in chapter 1, it says that everyone, everyone should be slow to speak quick to listen and slow to become angry. It is a model for all of us to attain that type of control. In Proverbs 25, Proverbs 25, verse 28, it warns us what happens if this quality is not present. For it says, a person without self-control is like a city with broken down walls. I know in this day and age, when we look at cities, we don't often think of walls. The walls were there for protection. The walls were there to allow the city to grow up in safety. The walls were there to keep everyone prosperous. And if you have a leader that does not have self-control, that is chaotic, in control of the power that God has given them, you're leaving the church, the city, your very lives open to plunder and a lack of prosperity. Paul goes on to say in 1 Timothy 3.2 that we are to live wisely. The Greek word describes a person who is of safe mind. And the New International Version translates the Greek with two different English words, 
self-controlled and sensible. Both describe a certain pattern of thinking, a way of approaching problems. Uh, again, that quick to think, slow to speak, slow to become angry, taking in the situation, determining the best course of action, seeking God as your source and your guidance to live wisely. We are also to be of good reputation. The Greek word is kosmion. This is where we get the English word cosmos. It describes a person whose life is well-ordered and well-arranged. Another word might be dignified, right? This is seen in a leader's outward behavior, in his dress. Not bad, right? In his uh, manners, in his speech, the way he relates to people, the way he relates to the opposite sex even. It touches on the way he keeps his home, how he handles his various affairs. It describes the person who can keep for lack of a better term, a dozen balls in the air at one time. An ordered life that juggles all of those different things that must take place. When you look at someone of good reputation, you know that they can handle it. They should also, in that good reputation, not be someone who always says, Hey, look at me. Look at all of these glorious things I am doing. That's not someone of good reputation. Paul does continue and says that they should be hospitable. Now, this word literally means lover of strangers. To be hospitable is uh, in regard specifically to your attitude towards other people. A godly leader must be open and approachable, vulnerable, transparent, one that shows genuine care. There are some questions that you could ask of your potential leaders. Does he open his home to others? Does he share easily with others? Is his life transparent? Would I have a problem sharing my problems with him? Would I feel free to ask his advice? Sorry, new, new tablet. Then, of course, when you're looking for a leader, you are looking for someone who is able to teach. This is more than just uh, a general statement. Uh, this is uh, a character requirement related to the actual work of an elder. So a leader, an elder, should be someone who is able to teach and to lead others together. 
the phrase able to teach translates one Greek word, which means both having a teachable spirit and able to teach others. So teaching isn't only about making sure that other people understand, but that you yourself understand. In fact, as a teacher myself, uh, as I've I, well, taught here, I've taught at, uh, at the IRS. Before that, I taught at uh, well, Target and Burger King. So you can feel safe knowing that they're all right. As a teacher, I can tell you that you learn more when you are studying to try to teach someone than you do when you are sitting down to learn it. In fact, I personally have a lot of trouble when I'm trying to listen to somebody else teach me. I have to do something else to distract part of my mind so I can actually focus on what's being said. Having a teachable spirit and being able to teach. I, are they eager to learn? Do they have a good working knowledge of the Bible? Is there a willingness to share spiritual truth with others? And is there a willingness to confront false teaching as well when necessary? Now, teaching also is not exclusive to leadership. Teaching is also a spiritual gift. Uh, not all believers possess this gift, but it is necessary in any group and body, and a leader must, pretend, must have the ability to teach in some form or capacity. The church, in fact, is built upon the word of God. Elders who are leading the church, therefore, must be men of the word. They must be able to teach the word and understand the word. That is non-negotiable. You cannot be someone that just likes to share positive message and throws in a Bible verse now and then. You have to understand what it is that you're talking about. You have to be willing to admit when you don't understand something and know how you can research that to find out and understand it better. So in order to be a teacher, it means that you must constantly, in our case, be in the word of God because this is how we find out the character of God. It's where we find out the person, how he uh, presents himself to us. Now, at this, uh, this is when Paul switches to a, a negative, right? Because a leader must not be given to drunkenness. Now, literally, this phrase means not lingering over wine. Um, it uh, translates also as not a lover of wine, not addicted to strong drink, not a drunkard, not a hard drinker, not excessive. Um, it includes the thought of not frequenting places where wine is misused, not using wine as a way of life. Now, this doesn't just cover wine, but uh, you do get the sense uh, when Paul was writing this that uh, wine is, is something that was used uh, in everyday practice, and it was. Uh, wine was better for you to drink than water in some cases, and wine came in various forms, various uh, various types from just a watered-down concentrate uh, to a full-on brew. Um, we experience that today, too, right? We have uh, so many different types of alcohol. In fact, now we have new flavorless seltzer water alcohol. What's that about? 
that that seems like you're just drinking for the purpose of drinking. I, I, don't, I don't understand it. Um, now, it, this does not demand total abstinence. It does not demand that you not uh, drink any wine. In fact, Paul goes on to tell Timothy that if he has an upset stomach, he should drink a little wine. So it's not that you should abstain. It's that you should practice that other attribute that we already discussed, which is self-control. Godly leaders must be above reproach, remember? And that includes in the use of wine. Now, I personally have been in bars. I've been in taverns. Shockingly enough, there are some places that I have been that you would say a leader should not go. But amazingly enough, I was able to be self-controlled and not overindulge in the spirits. Amazingly enough, I was able to use those opportunities to have relationship with people that I would not have been able to have relationship before. And in some cases, like when I'm visiting lacrosse, there's really no other place to get food, guys. Come on. One of the local pastors frequents there and has a beer every night. Well, I'm being simplistic, but you understand. It's not saying that you should never go to a tavern. It's saying that when you do, you should go for the right reasons and you should not overindulge. Even if you're drinking at your own home, it's not for overindulgence. Paul goes on to say in another negative connotation that a leader must not be violent. In fact, I like what the King James says. It says, not a striker. Makes it pretty clear, right? Not a striker. A violent person who is easily angered, overly assertive, manipulative, demanding, coercive, highly critical of others, quick to pick fights, slow to make up afterwards. Not to be a hothead. Remember, as I said in the book of James, not me as I wrote it, but as I said earlier in this sermon, in the book of James chapter 1, slow to become angry. To become angry is not a bad thing. Christ himself showed us an example of righteous anger as he took time to go away and build a whip and to break up the shops that had cornered around his father's house. It warms against those who would use physical abuse, verbal abuse, mental abuse, or emotional abuse in order to get their way. Paul's command is simple. Do not choose those type of people to be your leaders. In addition to that, Paul says you should not be quarrelsome. Again, King James uses a Pisturex phrase. He says, not a brawler. Right? Not a person who likes to pick fights. Likes to get down and dirty with it. Throw in the first punch. Trade insults. Put other people down. Just the love of argument. the king of those cute little comebacks. We see in Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 20, 
Verse 3. Avoiding a fight is a mark of honor. Only fools insist on quarreling. Paul is basically saying that those that are in leadership should not be fools. It continues on to say that we should not be a lover of money. Now, take heed here. This doesn't mean that they should not make money. It's just that money should not be the goal of their life. You are not looking for someone to lead you if everything is a get-rich-quick scheme. Everything is geared towards making that almighty dollar giving it more power than even God in your life. This isn't to say that you are supposed to be poor. Um, it doesn't mean that doesn't mean that you shouldn't even have a lot of money. If God has given you a lot of money, praise be to God, use it appropriately. But that should not be the goal. That should not be everything that you wish to obtain. There is not anything wrong with having money or using money, but it should not be the measure of your life. And of course, when we talk about money, that, that just goes flawlessly right into a leader being a manager of his household. To manage, to stand before, to lead, to do it well in an orderly fashion. We need our leaders to be men who can handle their families in an orderly fashion. The home is the best training ground. The home is the best picture. For if a man cannot take care of his home, if he cannot manage his home, how can he manage the church. If he cannot make sure that things are taken care of at home, if he cannot take care of the spiritual life of his own family, how can he take care of God's children? And then, of course, speaking of children, as he manages his home, he should have children who obey him. This particular qualification is stated in two different ways. In 1 Timothy, it says the elder must have children who respect and obey him. In Titus 1.6, it's more specific, and it says a man whose children believe and are not open to being wild and disobedient. A leader should be a model father. Now, I'm not saying that... Uh, well, I'm not even saying that, that I can raise perfect children. Not saying that any of us can raise perfect children. Uh, I'm not saying that we should have children that never make mistakes. But they should never speak, uh, seek to do wrong. Seek to disobey. They should never seek to cause chaos. And then we get into a word of caution. For Paul does say to us that it should not be a new believer. The word for new believer is neo-futon. 
That's where we get the word in English, neophyte. Neophyte literally means new plant. I want you to think about that. A new plant. You should not put a new plant in leadership because new plants need what? They need a lot of care. They need nurturing. They need fertilizer. They need someone who is willing to care for them, to pull the weeds so they do not get choked out. They need to make sure that they get enough water, that they get enough light. New plants need a lot of care. Someone who needs a lot of loving care cannot handle the pressure of leadership without either breaking down or becoming proud of their own accomplishments without the proper context. It's like a tomato vine with no trellis to cling on to. Blackberry bushes that overcome a wild area instead of trained vines that are deeply grounded and rooted and have clung hold of the supporting structure. And last, you love those words, right? <clears throat> last but not least, a leader should have a good reputation with outsiders. This is often overlooked. We talked about good reputation. We talked about good reputation specifically in regards to the people that they are in fellowship with, the people that they are leading to. But good reputation is literally translated as good witness. So the question is, what kind of witness does this leader, what kind of um, interactions does this leader have outside of the church? What do they do if they are bivocational and they have to, to work outside of the church? Do those people think that, oh, it's that guy? Oh, here comes James again. You better watch your stuff. Or do they have a good thought? Do they say, you know that James, he's a good stand-up guy. Do they have that thought that uh, there's just something different about him? I just can't put my finger on it. Um, there, there just seems to be something It's kind of cool about him. I want to get to know him. A good reputation with those on the outside. A good leader will have a good reputation and will not besmirch the name of God or the church that they are in leadership in. People will want to know more because of how they carry themselves. Okay, everybody. Shake it off. We're hitting the home stretch here. I know it's hot. <clears throat> we just went through about 15 different attributes. Now, these are not all-inclusive. These are not the end-all, be-all. In fact, 2 Timothy, or pardon me, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 through 5, is not the only place that we see attributes of leadership. It is what one of many, and they're all pretty consistent. What's important here is we take those attributes and we apply them as a specific standard for us. It is not simply, again, something that we put on on Sundays. It's not a, uh, a role that we take on. It's not uh, 
look good this day, mess up the rest of the week. These qualities should shine through as a natural outworking of what is in your heart. For both leaders and for everybody. Though they may not be perfect or have everything down, the key is that they are working, struggling, pushing to become who God has created them to be. Just looking at that brief list over what we can see being a letter is it's a pretty tough job, right? To encompass all of those things and more. I want you to think about what it looks like to have an elder, a pastor, or a board member that doesn't follow those. And then I want you to think about what it looks like to have pastor, elder, board member that does follow those. I want you to take and apply those principles to your life and to think to yourself, is that something that I should be doing? Leaders are held to higher standards and they deserve your respect. Leaders face greater temptations, and they need your prayers. And leaders bear heavy burdens, and they need your support. This list of stuff that we've gone over is not meant to depress us, to weigh us down. It is meant to inspire us to be better men and women. If you do feel particularly depressed or convicted by any of these things, that's okay. It's okay as long as you don't stay there. It's okay to say, I don't meet those qualifications now. But it's better to say, by the grace of God, this is the kind of person that I want to be and to actually work towards that. God did not call for us to be completely perfect, but to continue to grow towards perfection. He realized, he knows that we cannot do so on his own power, and we have evidence of that by the person of Jesus Christ. So I have some questions for you. Do you see these traits in leaders that you know of outside of the church? So do you see those traits in leaders outside the church? What areas do you see yourself needing growth in? It's time for introspection. It's time to be vulnerable. It's time to be above reproach. What areas do you see yourself needing growth in? And I also want you to ask, uh, do you see these qualities in people who are not in leadership? Because these are not, like I said, exclusive only to leadership, but leadership does hold them in higher regards. These are things for all of us to ponder, all of us to take and to strive for. So I would like you to take opportunity now to go ahead and disperse to your cell groups and to take up these discussions. Thank you.